Pack Warriors, Tansei Sego, Ani Buju, Quay Nindaluizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And let's just say, there's been a lot of defending our sovereignty and land rights on Turtle Island lately. Thank you to the Wet'suwet'en Nation hereditary leaders and all of the clan members for standing firm on your land rights and your rights to govern according to your own Wet'suwet'en laws and traditions. In the colonial context in which we live, with tremendous government pressure to give up our cultures, our identities, and our sovereignty, and our lands, we know that native resistance is no small feat. It takes incredible strength, determination, and commitment to be able to stand on the front lines for days, weeks, months, and years. In a society that divides us into good Indians, the ones that go along to reduce harm to their families, versus the bad Indians, the ones that resist genocide in order to protect our families, forget that we're all working towards the same goal, and that is to protect our families, our communities, our clans, houses, longhouses, and nations. We are a colonized peoples, and with that comes all of the associated social difficulties but we haven't forgotten what is important. We may not all be in the same place in this effort to decolonize, but we still have warriors acting on our behalf to defend our sovereignty in our lands, and that's what gives us all hope. For the benefit of those who may be tuning into my Warrior Life podcast for the very first time today, I want to set the context for today's interview with a well-known warrior woman. What we know is that Coastal Gas Inc. Pipeline, a subsidiary of TransCanada, is trying to build a pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory without the free prior and informed consent of the nation. The pipeline decided to ignore the hereditary leaders and secure impact benefit agreements with some of the Indian Act Bank Councils and ignore the eviction order issued by the hereditary leaders based on their own laws. Coastal GasLink then went to court to get an injunction to allow them to proceed with the construction of the pipeline, and acting on that injunction, the RCMP invaded Wet'suwet'en territory and forcibly removed Wet'suwet'en peoples from their homes against the law. Although the RCMP prohibited journalists from covering the forced removals, there were enough pictures and videos from inside the camps to see the RCMP with heavy machinery, helicopters, and an army of heavily armed officers. These actions, which clearly breach human rights, the freedom of the press, and indigenous rights, inspired nationwide actions in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en. The Wet'suwet'en solidarity actions have continued this past week and continue to grow in size as more and more First Nations and Canadian organizations issue formal statements of support for all of the Wet'suwet'en leaders and the other people engaged in the solidarity actions. And that includes all of the youth who have organized around this issue. One of the actions that has received a great deal of attention is the peaceful camp near the railway at Tandanaga Mohawk Territory. Despite all the headlines about dangerous blockades, the rail was never even really blocked. I honestly don't know how Canadians can keep the whole situation straight, given the high level of misinformation coming from government officials and the RCMP, and the very problematic headlines and coverage in some of the mainstream media. 
That's why I'm continuing to cover the Wet'suwet'en Solidarity Action so that you have a chance to hear from the people that are on the ground and you get to hear the facts firsthand. Today I'm really honored to be able to learn from warrior woman Christy Belcour. She's been on the ground in Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory and has been doing her part as a friend and an observer in solidarity with their actions. Christy is a well-known warrior woman from across Turtle Island and an incredible Métis artist. Her work can not only be seen on canvas, but in art shows and in fashion. And her artwork is also a symbol of our resistance and is used on everything from t-shirts to rally signs on the ground. In addition to her paintings, she's also known as a community-based artist, environmentalist, and advocate for the lands, waters, and indigenous peoples. She is currently the lead organizer for Onaman Collective, which focuses on resurgence of language and land-based practices. She is deeply rooted within her Métis traditions and the knowledge of her people and does whatever she can to support our native brothers and sisters all over Turtle Island to revitalize our languages, cultures, and ultimately protect Mother Earth. Thank you so much for coming on this show, Christy. I know that you have just been fully engaged in all of this, like you are in all of our actions and revitalization and resurgence across Turtle Island. So I really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so maybe we can start out for our listeners, um, where you introduce yourself in the way that you would like to be introduced. Uh, my name is Christy Belcourt. I'm a chief from uh, Manitou Saugigan, which is uh, Lac St. Anne in Alberta. Wonderful. Well, you know, I have been following your work for a long time and, you know, I've struggled to find some proper way to describe you, but you're just everything. You know, you're, you're an artist, you're an educator, you're a leader, you're a warrior, you're just, you're this major role model for so many Indigenous youth and you and what I admire most about you is that you know there's there's no compromising you're just you stay true to you know Indigenous values and and defending our you know our sovereignty our land and our ways of being and um, I really appreciate all the work that you do. Oh well thanks I guess uh, my my stubbornness pays off sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good characteristic to have. So <laughs> let's talk about, you know, everything that's been happening. So, you know, everything started out with, you know, um, the RCMP of, of Wet'suwet'en Territory, um, forcibly removing Indigenous peoples from their lands against, you know, Indigenous laws, Canadian laws and international laws. Then we have massive solidarity actions, all of which were peaceful, all of which, you know, followed Indigenous protocols around safety and, and peacefulness and um, th the way we always do things. And then um, the RCMP gave in, or the, sorry, the OPP gave indication that they were going to move in on the um, those that were engaged in the solidarity actions in Tyndanaga Mohawk territory. And I'm wondering if you could just, you know, tell us a little bit about what happened there because there's been so much noise in the media. I think it's really hard for people to know what did and didn't happen. Yeah, so uh, before I say what I'm going to say about what happened and what mm -hmm. I witnessed happen, I want to make it clear that I'm there um, as a friend uh, and as a witness and an observer and as a helper, really, in the community. 
um, and that I am not I am not from Tyndanaga Mohawk territory, mm-hmm. and I don't do not purport to speak on their behalf. So I just want to make that really clear. I, I will speak from my own perspective of what I saw, and and what I witnessed. And um, so what I can tell you is that I've been there for two weeks. Uh, I I've been friends with Seth for like a couple years now. So um, it was just. Uh, natural to go and want to help and support him and and support the community in any way that I I could. And so um, I've been there while the negotiations have been going on with Mark Miller uh, between, uh, you know, the the discussions that have been going Mm -hmm. on with the hereditary chiefs to the RCMP, uh, back to uh, the Mohawk people in Tyndanaga to the <laughs> OPP is like this grand sort of a, you know, you know, the Métis flag, the infinity flag. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what it's like. These discussions are just like going around and around on the infinity flag. Like, like they just won't like, that's, that's how it's been going in my Incredible. mind. That's how I sort of visualize it. So um, I think uh, what I can say is that the Mohawk people in Tyandanega have just, I, I mean, I, I just cannot say enough about how much respect I have for each and every one of them. I watched as they dis- discussed as people in their clan systems, putting their traditional governance in full effect. Like it was so natural. Like it's, this is a place that has never lost their traditional governance, their languages, their songs, their, their ways of being their, their history. You know, they're so it's so embedded in 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 part of just each and every uh, individual that's there. And one of the things that they say all the time is that is that I, I've heard this from several people there is that we're just individuals here and nobody's higher than another and we make decisions together. And that's what I witnessed. So the media is always looking for like. Uh, they're always looking for one sort of person mm-hmm. as a, as the star or, or but our communities don't often work like that you know that's my that's what i've seen is that uh, all of like collectively indigenous communities sort of like leaders will rise up in the mm-hmm. areas that they're good at and people recognize them for those leadership roles in those times that they're needed and and that is really what i'm seeing here is that the people themselves are making the decisions they don't make any decisions without without going to their clans and deciding as a people how they're going to proceed. So that was one thing that I thought was really amazing uh, to witness. And the other thing that I, that I really wanted to talk about was this, uh, I don't know if I can swear on your program, but like to, <laughs> <laughs> to say, like, to, I don't know any other word to use besides complete fuckery that the, that the government has uh performed in this entire thing and in retrospect um sitting where i'm sitting now at the day after uh the opp went in at seven o'clock in the morning or whatever time it was and arrested 10 uh mohawk warriors um what had happened in the just even the hours leading up to that is is amazing and that's a story that's not getting out on the media that I would like people to know, which is that the RCMP had been in communication with other um, officials in BC and with the federal government 
and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs to sort of signal to them that once once the the chiefs had arrived back into BC, that they would sit down and have a conversation about the exit plan for the RCMP out of Wet'suwet'en territory. And they were the, the chiefs were led to believe that there would be a letter that would be coming from the RCMP at noon yesterday, indicating that. That's incredible. And so, yes. And so at one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, the Mohawk people in Tyndanaga are on the phone with Mark Miller and the OPP sending texts back and forth saying, hold off. Like, you don't need to do this. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because we're apparently this is what's happening. And we're just they're li- The chiefs are literally flying in the air right now and we can't get a hold of them. But this is what's happening. And so if you just wait then we're going to we're we're being told that this letter is coming at noon tomorrow and there's no need for your your people to go in the OPP to go in and and arrest people and 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 possibly cause harm um there's no need for people to do that because um this letter's coming and we ourselves will take take down our camp that's beside the tracks and we will leave the land as we felt found it uh within a, a a 12 to 24 hour window. Like we will clean everything up and go. And this is what the, the Mohawks and Tyndanaeg have, were saying the entire time. Wow. And so, so what that indicates to me is that, and so when I think about it now, I can see that the play that Trudeau made mm-hmm. and the play that the RCMP made and the play that the OPP and all of them made in collusion with each other was to create hope that a peaceful resolution could be found amongst the people and create hope that the RCMP would leave Wet'suwet'en territory so that they could stand up in the Canadian public and say all avenues have been exhausted and that the, the responsibility for this is now on the, on the shoulders of Indigenous people. And that was a deception that I just can't, I can't fathom. Because the thing was, is that the, that the Mohawk people in Tyndanaga made it clear in their meetings with Mark Miller and in, in all of their dealings with everybody, even the Wet'suwet'en chiefs during that meeting, that they were standing in solidarity and that once they had received confirmation that the that the RCMP had left Wet'suwet'en lands, that that they would that they would remove their encampments, that were beside the tracks, not on the tracks. By the way, there was nothing ever put on the tracks, in in Mohawk territory. So even just the use of the word blockade is a deception. It's a strategic deception. Yeah, I mean, I I, I should clarify Mohawk Tyndanaga territory. Yeah, so yeah, that's exactly. uh, yeah. So that's that's what there was never anything on the tracks, and and I don't I'm not even sure about there was apparently a, some tires on fire there last night, but I don't even know nobody knows who who lit those, yeah. and they did see the police on the other side, so they like I I don't know I'm not saying anybody did anything I just right. don't know so so I mean the the major story here is about this deception 
that it, in all cases, it, all the way along, including, you know, in, in all of my communications with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders and clan members, they were they were always just asking for dialogue, peaceful negotiation, peaceful resolution. Let's have these nation to nation discussions. And here, you know, you're you bore witness to the Mohawks at Tandanega saying, look, we're standing here in solidarity and you know, when this this peaceful resolution that's been promised comes about, we will remove this. There's no need for police intervention. Everybody wants a peaceful resolution. And the way it has been portrayed by, you know, political peop officials and political commentators and pundits who who don't have any connection to anybody and the media in general was like this was a dangerous blockade the tracks were being blocked in Tyendinaga you know it's a crisis situation there's no one's talking the Wet'suwet'en refused to talk uh, talks have broken down I mean I, I heard that reported multiple times yesterday that talks had broken down they wouldn't talk to anyone anymore they had no choice but to go in and that, that's like categorically false Categorically false. Categorically false. There are, I mean, the transcripts of the meeting with Mark Miller, uh, the 80-page transcript um, is, is in full, is available for anyone to read. It's been posted on realpeoplesmedia.com. It's up there. Anybody can download it and read it. And the, the, the conversation that Seth uh, uh, Lafort just had with um, Chief Wass is uh, it was recorded and the audio has been posted up. And the fascinating thing too is, so here, here's how, just to give people an understanding of how and when things happen, because I understand that there's so many solidarity actions happening mm -hmm. across this, across the country that it's really been difficult to, to sort of like know when things are happening and, and, mm -hmm. you know, how it all played out in, in sort of a timeline. So on February 15th, uh, Mark, uh, Minister Mark Miller, Minister of Indigenous Services, Mark Miller, uh, came to Tyndanaga to sit down with the people. And there was uh, at least at like 100, about 100, maybe 80 to 100 people in attendance. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they sat with, with uh, Minister Miller all day long um, and, uh, you know, had a discussion. And they, they, it's kind of interesting. I, I, don't, I don't know much about... Um, the history in this region uh, in terms of like the treaty history and the agree like the the wampum belts and all those things and I, I can't speak to those things but what I can tell you is that um, Minister Miller had a, a request to quote-unquote polish the chain in reference to the covenant chain mm -hmm. agreement and uh, and so um, what I understand is that from what from what I was told is that this is an agreement with the Queen um, or her representative, that when when uh, either side, uh, so it's a chain that links the Queen to the Mohawk people in Tindanaga, or uh, maybe the Mohawk people generally, uh, I guess generally. Um, and see, this is why I shouldn't speak for this, because I really don't know. But what but what I find interesting, and there's a point to what I'm saying, even though I may make mistakes, and uh, I apologize, I totally apologize for, for, for not speaking of this correctly, if I make a mistake. But my understanding is that it, that one side can can pull on the chain if there's a if there's a a uh, uh, an issue between them that needs to be discussed and that will trigger uh, um, discussions. So Mark Miller uh, referenced this in 
saying, you know, we should polish the chain, which which um, the Mohawk people in Tindanega said, well, as a matter of fact, we sent you a letter. Um, one of our clan, clan or the clan mothers sent you a letter like like a month ago in January asking to meet with you on this very issue so that these things could be avoided. And then and then I think it was Seth who said, um, maybe maybe next time when we send you a letter, you won't ignore it and we won't have to pull on a train for us to be heard. Wow. You know, and it was just like it was really this amazing moment that was like again showing that all along the way the the Mohawk people in Tindanega were trying to get the government's attention and then when they finally did from that moment on were in dialogue with them there was no breakdown of discussion there was no breakdown of talks ever wow you know and and the thing was is that they just they just had this one um demand which was you know you cannot basically you can't have nation to nation talks and negotiate and talk about the areas in consultation that you didn't do properly or the things that you you know the things that the government did not do properly in order to p- try and push that pipeline through on lands what soitan lands that they simply don't have the title to and and so you know, by by trying to push this through and then having the RCMP go in there and remove people by gunpoint amounted mm-hmm. to a violation in international law where you, you know, you can't remove people. by, by yep. the, You can't remove Indigenous people off our lands by gunpoint. It's just that you can't, well, not even by gunpoint. You just yeah. can't do it. And so, you know, Canada is the one that's at fault here. And, and that needs to be clearly stated. That this that this is this is not about blockades and it's not about all of that. This is about land title, and it's about about following their own laws, following international laws, and following indigenous laws. Which which because Canada does not have title on those lands is the only law that matters in that land. Exactly, and you know it just actually astounds me that. Where in the conversation is the fact that BC passed Bill 41, which implemented UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, into law in BC, which includes, like you said, protections against the forced removal of Indigenous peoples from their territories. I mean, it protects a whole lot of other things, but Mm -hmm. it protects against the forced removal. Like, where's that discussion about the breach of that law? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just it's really, it's really really. Uh, it feels almost like, well, I mean, we've kind of known this for a long time, right? Is that it seems like there's two different realities in Canada. Mm-hmm. There's like there's like this kind of reality that the majority of Canadians seem to believe in, which has nothing to do with 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 our realities as as indigenous nations and it's it seems like how can how can people live side by side for 500 years and just be so completely not understanding of each other do you know what i mean but 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 i mean that like it's just such a strange thing i i remember at the tracks when mark miller was standing there and and uh seth was speaking to him um he said uh he said you know you 
your government and you, well, you basically Canadians, mm-hmm. he said, he said you. So in the, in the general mm-hmm. form of you, you Canadians, um, you Canadians have, have, you know, spent 150 years, um, you know, erasing the history that we've these of these agreements that we've had with you, you know, and and you've you spent 150 years trying to erase the memories of who we are as Indigenous people or as Mohawk people in in the minds of our children. Mm-hmm. And he says, but you also spent 150 years trying to erase the minds the memory of our our relationship with you in the minds of your own children. And again, another profound moment. Wow. You know, because we wow. all know that that's true. And when yeah. we look at, you know, we're here I am, I'm, I'm 53 years old, and I grew up, uh, you know, my dad is, is Tony Belcourt. So I grew up like immersed in, you know, Indigenous politics and understanding all of this stuff and 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 I'm seeing these cycles repeated every 10 years over and over mm-hmm. again with every new minister that comes in every new government that comes in every new you know set of new police that come in every it's like they have to be reeducated over and over and over and then what happens is you know a new set comes in they make some they make mistakes over again and then they say they need you know sensitivity training so here we here we are, you know, as Indigenous people, we have to be like, we have to like sensitivity train everybody. We've got to be historians. We have to be legal experts. We have to be geologists. We have to be, you know, architects, We arch, arch, uh, archaeologists. We've got to have all of this level of expertise in order that we can hold the hands of Canadians to, to bring mm-hmm. them along, you know, in the jobs that they are being hired to do. You know, as experts, and we have to hold their hands and help them to understand these things that they are not being taught as children. And so, for me, fundamentally, the the entire erosion of of the relationship uh, well, was there ever a relationship? Mm-hmm. But the entire fact that we can't ever have a relationship properly with Indigenous people rests on two things. Number one is they stole all the land, and number two is they're not educating their own their own children. And so my children now or my grandchildren will have to endure the same battles as we are because they're not educating their children on the nat- nature of their relationships that they that their ancestors made with us. Well, exactly and then the people who should be I mean, if you think that there even has to be a minister of Indian Affairs, wouldn't you think that they would be engaged in massive nationwide public education, both, you know, in the K to 12 system, but just public education in general? Um, <laughs> you, you would think that they would. And and here's like what what I find really frustrating about this whole doing it all over again. You know, even that's a deception. There are people, there are bureaucrats who have been working in this as long as your father has, as long as you have, who know all of this stuff, yet every time there's an issue, they feign ignorance. Well, <laughs> so let's let's have a meeting and come to the table. So what is it that you want? Like, just over and over and over. It's almost like a make-work project that never ends, you know, this kind of treadmill that just keeps going. What is it that you want? Okay, thanks. Well, we'll get back to you. And then, sorry, what was it that you wanted again? And and I think also crucially is that 
Canada, as far as I understand, they refuse to uh, adopt UNDRIP in terms of the consent portion. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a really, really crucial thing. And as a as a woman, and uh, it, yeah. it, it's just the creepiness on the parallels between <laughs> yep. between consent over our bodies and consent uh, is just is just really. Uh, disturbing to me at some uh, on some level but um so when i think about that because i've asked about this so what happens if the federal government uh, so first of all under harper he he as far as i remember he he gave the fiduciary responsibility to uh, corporations to mm-hmm. administer the the cons- the uh, consultation portion um to uh, you know get consent supposedly from indigenous people or communities for projects. And so uh, when he switched that over, um, so then I was asking somebody, so is it possible to say no? Is it possible Mm -hmm. for an indigenous community to say, we don't want that project in our, in our lands. And what I've heard from, from different, um, people who understand the law much better than I do is that it's, it's actually not possible. So what happens is if a a corporation comes in and says, I'm, you know, I'm, I have to do this engagement thing because it's part of the law and Mm -hmm. uh, we have to figure out how we're going to proceed on this project. And we want to build this, uh, you know, massive uh, project on your lands and the people say no in, in the sense of, we're not going to be consulted because if we get consulted, then then you get to check that box off and say, oh, we consulted them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we've we've fulfilled our fiduciary responsibility for consultation. So so if people, if the community says, you know, we're turning our backs on them and we're not going to be consulted, then then the federal government can say we tried, and that amounts to a de facto cons- consultation, because they can say they didn't come to the table, therefore we tried. And uh, and and that was that fulfills our fiduciary responsibility. The second thing is that if a community comes out and let's say they have a they hold um, some kind of a meeting, and it, and the the corporation hears, um, like for example, ninety eight percent of the people are against the project, then the corporation is not required to hold a referendum on the project or a vote on the project they're only required within their report to indicate dissent and to indicate what the concerns were so not even a dissent necessarily but under the category of concerns mm-hmm. so for example if the if people stand up and unanimously in a community say you know we we consider our river to be sacred and it's it's life-giving and we just are not you know, we're concerned that this pipeline is going to poison our river for all time for the rest of our, our generations. The way that it gets noted in the rep- final report under mm-hmm. the consultation is that they were concerned about environmental issues in case there was a rupture of the pipeline, you know, and in which case then the mm-hmm. company can say we have uh, you know, we've mitigated their concerns by addressing what we will do in the case of a, a spill. So it's just like there's there's no actual mechanism with which a community can can say no. And yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. And th- the problem is, though, I don't even think that that's valid under Canadian law. I think that's a gross 
misinterpretation of Canadian law, international law, you know, a set aside Indigenous law for a minute, because if, if you just look at, you know, consent generally in the law, think about, you know, sexual consent. It's hmm. not, I'm going to, you know, consult with you about whether or not you want to have relations and ultimately I get to decide whether I do or not. Or think about medical consent. Does a doctor say, well, you know, here's some information for you, but ultimately I'm going to decide whether you have surgery or not. Or parental consent. Think about a school that says, you know, we think this field trip would be really good for your child and we'll consult with you about whether you want it or not. But ultimately we decide. Like there's just no forms of consent in law that I have found in any of my research that is impoverished with a consultation uh, criteria that allows you to dispense with consent. And I think that's exactly why free prior informed consent was put in UNDRIP and why, you know, the Indigenous interpretation of that consent is not an impoverished one, but it's one that matches more accordingly with what the law is. Because, I mean, we know here in Canada, you can have a decision from the Supreme Court of Canada and then the federal and provincial municipal governments impoverish the interpretation down to almost nothing such that there, there is no actual practical benefit from any of those Supreme Court of Canada decisions, although they, you know, they're very problematic as an aside. But I, I don't even think that that stands the test of law and certainly corporations engaging in that. There's no defense. I mean, the United Nations has clearly said that, you know, corporations that rely on permits and leases and licenses from governments where there hasn't been, where the consent hasn't come from First Nations are equ should equally be liable and cannot rely on those uh, basically illegal permits. So Canada's way behind in terms of its legal interpretations about what the law is. And I, I think that's just, well, we know it serves a purpose. It serves a corporate agenda, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. corporate agenda serves the electoral agenda. Mm -hmm. That's that was really that's really well said. I um I also remember that. Uh, so Seth Seth uh, Mohawk name is Ganana Ganana Rio. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm just still practicing, <laughs> but um anyway he he was saying. Um, there was one point that when you were saying that, that I was remembering in his discussions with Mark, Minister Mark Miller, where he said, you know, you, you, you forced the Indian Act on our communities mm -hmm. and you forced the destruction of, of our, uh, our governance structure in this community. And you, you put in the Indian Act system and then, you know, and then you go to that system. He says the Indian Act band councils are simply an arm of the federal government and he said you are asking for permission from your own selves yeah you know and and that was like another one of those moments where it's just like it that was i mean you you know you could feel it in the room you could feel it it was palpable that you know what he was saying was so true and so poignant that you know, there wasn't really a lot that that the minister could really say you know, because it because it was the truth, and the truth has a ring to it, and you feel it in, inside of you, and and so what what Minister Miller did say was that he he did admit that the federal government destroyed traditional governance, you know, and and that was the first time I think in my life I've ever heard an, 
a minister uh, wow. of the of the crown actually admit that and and so you know it was it was pretty um it was it was pretty uh, amazing uh, to witness and to be in that room. And the other thing about consent that I think is important too, and this is sort of turning the dialogue, I think, more in- internal to our own our own communities. I, c- I can speak about the Métis Nation, for example. I mean, David Chartrand, uh, the, mm-hmm. the um, spokesperson for the Métis National Council, he sort of plays all sorts of roles. And he's, uh, you know, uh, n- not highly respected within the Métis community, I'll tell you. Uh, and, you know, he... He came out with this, you know, whenever whenever the government sort of feels under some pressure, he's always the first one to come out with some kind of statement, you know, uh, praising the liberals. Mm-hmm. And he does it in, in such a piggish manner that it just, it makes me sick to my stomach, you know, as a, as a Métis person. And, um, and I know it does for literally thousands of others, Métis people across the country. And th- this this is what I want to talk about is not really get into, you know, how how ineffective the Métis National Council is, but mm-hmm. to get into the fact that uh, the government uses these um, political structures that were set up as, the, you know, these these are are uh, corporations that are registered. They're, they're organizations mm-hmm. that were set up as. Um, like even the AFN at the same time was yep. set up as a corporation uh, structure, a model to facilitate some dialogue on a federal level with the federal government that was, you know, ir- like just ripshod running over the rights of Indigenous people. Yeah. And so people were organizing this in the 60s and 70s um, really quickly. And and these these political structures were never meant to be governments. They were meant to be lobby bodies that, or lobbyists or, or just a, a way in which to bring the voices forward of the people that, you know, were, were being, yeah. whatever, were being oppressed. And so our, um, you know, but now what's happened is the governments have been giving them so much money yeah. that they just, they're just these little fiefdoms unto themselves. And there's no actual consultation that happens. And the government knows this. So what's really frustrating for me is, as a Métis person is that, and this is why I left the Métis Nation of Ontario, I, I withdrew my, my membership from it, was because they were signing deals with, with the nuclear waste management organization and with mining and all sorts of things. And, and I tried many, many avenues to speak to people in the leadership, to, um, you know, invite them for tea to like, like to do whatever wow. I could to try and convince them um, that this was not the right thing to do and to tell them why. And, and they just simply, I never, I never got any response whatsoever. And nobody was ever asked if that's what wow. we wanted. Nobody was ever asked or even told in advance that there were these agreements coming that, what do you think? Nobody was ever consulted. Nobody was ever told anything and and even when you asked for the actual agreements when you found out about it later nobody responds to your your emails nobody people don't have access to what to what their supposed elected leaders are doing or saying on their behalf you know and and this is a this is a a construct of the government that they know works for them and so they use that 
and they use these organizations and these leaders to to they they're their go-to and they go to them knowing full well because they it's not like they're not paying attention mm-hmm. knowing full well that they're not consulting their own people well, and exactly. and this is this is why I think sorry I didn't mean to cut you there no, but no. this is why I think people are what I think is so interesting about the solidarity actions uh, with what with the Wet'suwet'en is is because people across the country are all feeling this whether you are First mm-hmm. Nations or Métis or maybe even Inu- Inuit you're feeling that and I and again I can't speak for everybody but just my general observation mm-hmm. with the fact that so many people are joining these movements and and speaking about the fact that there's no consent no consultation the process is flawed to the point where they have don't feel like their voices are being heard mm-hmm. is is all a reflection of the failure of the federal government to engage properly to make sure that they have the people's voices being heard they don't care about the people's voices because it doesn't serve their interests. In many cases, they know that, of course, the people don't want a nuclear, you know, waste site in their First Nation. My goodness. It's like duress in the law. You know, they chronically underfund, star- literally trying to starve our people into submission. It's not even a new tactic. It's, you know, what they've done for, for years. But, you know, you talk about how they use these national Aboriginal organizations, NAOs as they're called, in a way that they were never set out to be this way. I mean, when they first started, they were literally the champions of our rights. They were the ones there to advocate on our behalf. And then over the years, like, who did the feds bring out to try to ask all of the, you know, solidarity people to stand down? It was the Mm -hmm. AFN and a couple of Indian Act chiefs, literally, to tell mm-hmm. our people to stand down. Our, I mean, our people who are suffering from genocide and murdered and missing and imprisoned in foster care. I mean, every crisis you can imagine to have the gall to tell our people to stand down. I mean, that, you know, I mean, we've known for a while, we've known since before Idle No More that this is a problem that, you know, our barriers are no longer just the governments, but it's also these organizations who, who stand to gain employment and power and money from all of these things. And that's not to say that everybody that works in these organizations are evil, but that's how these organizations function. That's where these leaders have put these organizations. There's nothing more heart-wrenching than seeing that on TV the AFN and some elected band councils saying, stand down, because what message does that tell the Canadian public? Oh, well, all Native people. This is just a bunch of renegades or a few rogues or a few radicals. And in fact, their leadership, their perceived government doesn't even support them. And I think that does a lot of damage. I agree. I And I, I also... Um... I know that this is sort of the, isn't that what they always do? I mean, we've seen that over and over, right? We've seen yep. that it's always our own leadership or, you know, our own people put in liaison positions mm-hmm. that are coming to ask our own people to stand down. I think that's what this is really, you know, and so I've I've been reading, you know, people's comments about, um, you know, from the perspective of, uh, other Wet'suwet'en people who mm-hmm. who are saying that this is not, you know, this is that that what the hereditary chiefs are saying is not a reflection of what they're, you know, uh, of of what they feel 
and um, and in and people are raising those questions, right? They're saying, yeah. is should people be going across the country and standing up for what is what they're trying to paint as only one side of the of the story, mm-hmm. and also just the idea of people. They're they're sort of saying, well, they're they're using the what's what's happening in Wet'suwet'en lands as a uh, a way to bring up their other agendas. For example. A way to say, well, I'm I'm anti pipeline, so therefore I'm going to stand with with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, or or mm-hmm. I am, you know, I'm an environmentalist, so therefore I'm going to, or I have these issues in my in my own lands like dirty water or whatever, so I'm going to yeah. stand. So they're they're saying that that people are are using it to sort of pile on their issues onto this, and yeah. and I think that from my perspective, from what I witnessed with the Mohawk mm-hmm. people in Tyndanaga, they said that very clearly in that meeting with Mark Miller. They said, we've been on a boil water advisory for over 10 years. And they said, we have a lot of issues here, but not once. I want this recorded and I want you to remember this, that we have never muddied the waters and asked for anything else. We only asked that the RCMP leave those lands for which you do not have a deed or title over. And that's it. And so they did not ask for anything else. And I think that that's what's really inspiring me mm-hmm. right now is mm-hmm. listening to all of these solidarity actions that are going on. That it's almost like, remember in Idle No More, it was like yeah. some people were like, well, it's it's about murdered or indigenous women. It's about residential schools. Yeah. And it's about, it's about um, land, of course. It's about water. Yeah. It's about... Bill C-45, Bill C-30, uh, Bill, what is it, Bill C-38? I can't remember exact, the exact numbers right now. But, um, you know, it's all about these things. And it yep. was all about those things. And it is all about those things. Yeah. But for, but for this, yeah. everybody's almost like, you know, just, just this one thing. Just this yeah. one thing, because it's the it because it's right. You don't have title to their lands, and the RCMP has no right to be enforcing an injunction on lands to which you do not have title on. And it's it's almost like we're just coalescing behind this one issue and yeah. saying and saying, you know, this the yes it. All of those other issues are matter and everything else is at play here. And yes, some people are environmentalists and some people are doing it because of indigenous rights and some people are doing it because they have boil water advisories in their own lands. And all of that is not what they're asking for. They're, right. they're just simply standing on principle to say that this is the issue of which this is the line in the sand you cannot cross because we've seen it happen all over. And if it's happening over there, it's going to happen over here or it already has. And we're just, we're tired now. And we just want this one thing. We want you to respect your own law. Well, think of how powerful that is, that in all the thousands of ways, it could have gone in a thousand different directions because our, you know, how we are so organic in the way we do this. We don't have an organization or a corporation telling us how to do this, that it could have gone in a million different ways. But no matter how much the media tried to say, so Pam, you know, what about this? It's like everything in the kitchen sink. It's like, well, no, in fact, I've only heard one thing. And that is RCMP leave Wet'suwet'en territory. And no matter how much they tried to make it a whole bunch of other things, 
for anything that I've heard all across the country and all of my communications and everything that I've monitored, clearly I can't see it all, but it's always been consistent. RCMP stand down, RCMP off Wet'suwet'en territory. I mean, you can't have reconciliation discussions or negotiations at gunpoint. So I thought that in all the ways that people could have co-opted or could have out of sheer desperation said, well, in my community, here's my issue, that they put they put this issue first. I, I think it's one of the most powerful things I've ever witnessed. Mm, myself as well. And the way also that this is the first time that I'm seeing that the organizations and the AFN and like the MNC, like they don't have a way in. Yeah. Like this is literally traditional governance. Yep. And it's literally grassroots people now that are at the table or supposedly was supposed to be at the table um, saying that this is, you know, that, which is really curious, right? Mm-hmm. Don't you think that that's, I mean, it's curious and it's obvious at the same time. Yeah. That yeah. the government, the government would, even though the Mohawk people in Tyndanaga and possibly everywhere else were, where, I don't, can't speak for the other solidarity movements, mm-hmm. is that they had said clearly that they would leave the enca- their encampments from beside the tracks, that they would mm-hmm. take them down, clear the tracks once the RCMP were off, and everywhere else sort of said the same thing. Yeah. And, and, and that the government chose to willfully mislead the public, enter into false uh, uh, little um, discussions of, that gave people hope that a peaceful resolution could be found, and do that also that they could stand up in front of the Canadian public to say that, that they had tried and, and we had failed. You know, and and don't you don't you just find that all just a little curious in the sense that because if they had have if if the Canadian government had have acted honorably and made this made this work and the RCMP and CGL and all of them had said, listen, we got the 30 day CGL got a 30 day Mm -hmm. stop work order. That was a perfect opportunity for them to say, you know what, this is the perfect time. Yeah, Let's just all sit down and worry about this. You guys all, you know, we're going to get the RCMP out. We're going to, we're going to, you know, all the, all the, um, well, not the, some blockades, but all the encampments are taken away. Everybody goes home. They're with their families and negotiations begin with the, with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, which is what should have happened all along. What that would have done is it would have sidetracked or bypassed their easy route to uh, approvals for projects because if they had have honored their own laws that way then it would have set a precedent for not going to just the band councils or the Métis organizations and getting the quick sign off you know and that's not to say that band councils don't don't often deliberate or that or to say that the that the the 20 bands of the Wet'suwet'en did not consult their people because I I simply don't know and I'm not going to make a judgment on that Mm -hmm. but I'm going to say that the government has forever used their own systems and used these uh, registered or uh, corporations that are organizations to get their quick sign-offs. And if they hadn't, if they didn't do that, if negotiated with the hereditary chiefs and allowed the grassroots people to have a say here, then that set a precedent for them that, you know, was going to impact their ability to move these projects through as fast as they have before. Imagine if the reverse, imagine if the words had been honorable and honest 
if the commitments to a nation-to-nation relationship based on respect for rights, based on the right to say no, based on UNDRIP, like if if all of those promises had been sincere and they paused during the 30 days and there were no solidarity actions because everyone was waiting for this resolution with the Watsuotiji, like he could literally have given even the critics what they wanted and the rails running again. Like he he could have done, and he could have come out like a leader. He could have come out as fulfilling his promises. He could have then said to the UN Security Council, whose seat that he wants so bad, look, I have the ability to be a leader and respect human rights in my country. This is the kind of leader that you want sitting on the UN Security Council. But instead, even for his own selfish purposes, he's going to lose all the way around. The only thing that's gained out of here is a maintenance of corporate power, which upholds and supports these political positions. Ultimately, it's the corporations here that win, the extractive industry, not even so much the politicians. But isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, all across the world, we're seeing this. And this is this is what I think a lot of people have been saying for for quite some time, is that the fact that police forces like Brandon, <laughs> Brandon, Manitoba, <laughs> uh, got, got like a, a militarized tank. <laughs> you know, like, like the, I'm laughing about it, but I'm not really. This is not funny. It's you know, true. The, the, all, across, all across the world, police forces are getting military are becoming militarized that's only to suppress their own people for the corporate agenda and and people are saying this but the rest of the world you know the majority of the people are not are not awake to understand what's going on here Mm -hmm. and corporations are running the show right now yeah you know it, it it's not just you know, the lobbyists that go and run for office and then go back into the CEO positions of these, yeah. mul- you know, these multinational corporations. It's, it's that they're literally writing the legislation. <laughs> they're literally, literally, you know, they're literally writing the legislation. They're, they're deciding what, what projects are going on. And this, this is all part of a, you, you know, what's really amazing too. I just, I want to go back to just yesterday, mm-hmm. yesterday morning as well, is that I don't know if most people know this, but that when the police moved in in Tyndanaga on the warriors and and made those arrests at the exact same time mm. two police cruisers entered Unistone RCMP police cruisers entered Unistone because it was the exact same moment mm-hmm. it indicates a level of collusion between the yep. OPP the federal government and the RCMP and BC government that was a a message to me, it was a message that said, don't you dare try it. You know, don't you dare try it. You think we we just played you. We played you in the media. Wow. You know, uh, that, that's what that said to me. And don't you think that you're going to get your nation to nation either? And look at how we responded. And, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of want to go back to your chronology because... Meeting with Minister Mark Miller, looks like there could possibly be resolution and the delegation from the Wet'suwet'en Nation of some of the hereditary leaders come to meet with the Mohawks at Tandanega. And it looks really positive. Like I had a lot of hope hearing about those leaders and, and talking with the Mohawks and everything that I had heard 
from the hereditary leaders on the the Wet'suwet'en side was like, you know, looks there's negotiations, look like there might be resolutions, maybe the RCMP will leave the territory and we can have discussions. I mean, everybody seemed internally hopeful and then out comes this pronouncement, oh, discussions have broken down, Wet'suwet'en won't talk and, you know, talks have broken down with the Mohawks. Trudeau says, blockades must be removed and fight requests and counter information asking the OPP not to do this, that there's probably a resolution and announcement coming. They move in and make arrests and really heart-wrenching. Now, were you there? Were you also a witness during the arrests? I didn't witness the first three people that got arrested, but I arrived there just uh, beforehand uh, before they made the arrest of the of the t- the other the other individuals, I think that uh, by my count there was about nine nine warriors um, standing in a line, and there was uh, about a hundred, maybe well maybe fifty. I don't, I don't know. I, I couldn't couldn't really tell because they were like in this human kind of fence mm-hmm. that was like a lineup, uh, and and they were facing each other and then I I arrived I I parked my vehicle and I started live streaming and then I was walking up towards them I'm really really respectful of the protocols in their community and I was told this is a position of the warriors to take care of this at the moment Mm -hmm. Um, they did not ask for women and other people to be uh, on the front lines um, other like non-Mohawk people right so um, that's what they as a community decided and uh, but I was um, I was told to to stand back a little bit and I could okay. film. And then when the arrests were being made, I went up closer um, and I was able to get in pretty close. And then I heard uh, from behind me, OK, stand back now. And then I and then so I went back. So on my live stream, I got some. But the but real people's media had their live stream going and they they got like right in there, um, the, the whole thing. So I was there when the arrests were made, and that was, I knew that the night before, like one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, there was texts going back and forth between Mark Miller, the OPP, Chief Was, you know, it was it was like this thing that was basically telling the OPP, like you, you look, here's some texts that we're getting from from these authorities saying that this is going to be happening. You don't need to move in, like. You're you're pre you're premature. Just hold on. Like there's yeah. no reason to do this because by noon tomorrow, you, this could all be cleared up. But they went in at seven or eight o'clock and in the morning, and then they also, like I said, there was two RCMP E Division cruisers that pulled into Unistoten at exactly the same time as the arrests were being made. It's obvious what they did. They had no plan, ever to come to some kind of a peaceful resolution, especially because there's a sensitivity around the, around the RCMP knowing, especially they made that announcement saying they were pulling yeah. out of what's territory. So the fact that like two cruiser cruisers just pull into Unistoten, what randomly at exactly the same time as they're making arrests in Tainanega. Nah, that didn't, yeah. that didn't work. The other thing too, that was interesting about Trudeau's uh, press conference uh, was that, he failed to mention that CGL didn't obtain its 30-day, its uh, environmental approval, that it had failed the report, and that, that they were put in, put on a 30-day stop work order. And that news came out the exact same day. 
So here were the Wet'suwet'en chiefs. Here, so here, here we are in in the Mohawk Council Hall. The Wet'suwet'en chiefs are there. Gitsan, uh, Gitsan hereditary yep. chief is there, and they are telling the people of the you know they're introducing themselves. There's proper introductions made. Uh, the people are sitting in their respective clans. Uh, the clan mothers are there, and uh, they're they're telling the people. Uh, why they're doing why what what's happening on their lands the sacredness of their river Frida Husson st- stood up and she she mm-hmm. talked about the the medicinal qualities of that river and that they can still drink from the river that they just they they offered CGL an alternate route and one of the chiefs said if they only need four feet for the pipeline why do they have to take take us off our territories why couldn't yeah. they have why couldn't they have just taken the alternate route that we offered why did it have to be across this river what they had said was so reasonable by any any account anybody would have thought that what they had said was reasonable and then i was listening as the discussions were going on so the discussions go on people have have a press conference to say that they met and they and they had discussions within their clans to decide that they are you know what are they going to do and the Mohawk people in Tindanega decided they they were in support of maintaining the encampment until the RCMP were off of the territory. So they reaffirmed that amongst themselves as a community. Mm-hmm. And then everybody broke to have the uh, press conference and then a meal. And then after that, I sat there and listened as an RCMP, BC RCMP representative and other officials that I don't know who was on that call. But they had the call on speakerphone, and there was the 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 uh, hereditary chiefs were sitting around that phone, and I listened as that RCMP person was talking in circles, but basically saying, you know, that that they need to keep, you know, they had just made the announcement that they were going to leave their territory, right? Yeah. So that here's this here's the hereditary chief saying, well, leaving the territory means leaving the territory, and then they're saying. Yeah, but we need to still patrol the roads because CGL has to has to do their work, you know. And and then they're saying, but CGL just got a thirty day stop work order. Like, why do you have? To, why do they have to do their work? And they're like, well, we need to patrol the roads for people's safety. And they said, well, they said, well, we've lived here for ten thousand years and we've never needed you for our own safety. And and they just they just like they just wow. kept on going around and around. But from what I understand was, and then at the same time as they're having that phone call, Trudeau is on the <laughs> on the TV, and everybody's watching their phones as he's doing this live press conference, wow. saying that talks have broken down. And it, it was just like it was like a, such a bizarre world to be in, to see what's going on, and then seeing them lie on on the live press conference as I'm literally watching. The hereditary chiefs in conversation, in conversation with BC police, RCMP representatives, and probably other government officials. I I don't know who else was on the call. It's beyond incredible. And I have a bone to pick with media that's very quick to just accept what government officials and industry are saying when they're... I mean, I was watching social media, but you have to know who follow and who to watch to to actually see, well, here's an actual picture of the hereditary leaders on this conference call with the BCRCMP while Trudeau is saying, oh, talks have broken down. Well, 
one or the other can't be right. Like, again, this podcast by talking about this kind of grand deception and everything that you've said in all of this chronology, all a deception, all of it. You know, it's not like we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the government is engaged in deception. Yeah. But Trudeau painted himself as a person who was for, you know, that no relationship was more important than Canada's relationship with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people. Like, that's that's what he said. He yeah. paraded at his, I don't know if you call it an inauguration or whatever you call it, but, you know, uh, you know, he when he first was, was elected prime minister and, and he was sworn into office, you know, he, he paraded people around from the Algonquin Nation and, you know, who... And I, and I don't mean that as any disrespect to them. I mean, it is a disrespect to him to say that he used Indigenous people who he was friends with to sh- to signal to the rest of the country that this is going to be different this time. He said that in a way that, that our own people were out there rocking the vote for him. And, you know, a number of people, including myself, I didn't get involved in that because I don't vote. But right. a number of people who were involved in that and I don't and I don't argue with with right. people I don't judge people for voting or not voting I right. really don't I just I really respect their decision my yeah. you know people in my family vote and uh and that's fine and I and I'll never argue with them about it I love yeah. my family just like I love I love our, I love all of our people so I you know all Métis people I love I love uh you know other nations and uh, yeah. other indigenous nations and I'm just never going to argue with our own people for stuff mm-hmm. so you know was just watching and thinking yeah you know <laughs> okay well you guys can vote but I I see it differently I see that he'll probably just turn out the same as uh, as all of the other ones and it doesn't matter who's in office because the yeah. corporate agenda is really what's driving it and uh, it doesn't matter if you're a smiling face that looks kind and young with a beautiful fresh family mm-hmm. or if you're you know old and curmudgeonly but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, it's not you calling the shots anyway. It's it's corporations that are, and you're simply going to be uh, used for them. The way that the police services are also being used are, is really disgusting too. Oh yeah. You know because they're being because the injunctions are have to be enforced by police, and the police there and the injunctions are being sought after by by these corporations that have money to lose, and so basically de facto. The corporations use the court systems to get them to to use the police services to be their private security firm for their for their interests. Yeah. If you will send in the army against people in in your own country, or what happened in Elsie Bookdook, where you had hundreds of what looked like militarized police like surrounding these thumper trucks to allow them to go ahead and do their work, like. Where's the police that we get to call and say, hey, our Aboriginal rights are being violated. Hey, they actually don't have all the permits required. Can you come in here, police, and stop them? Like, it's just, it's so one-sided. There is no access to justice within within that system. And and hence why we see all of the people taking to the mm-hmm. streets and blocking blocking rail lines or roads or, or building encampments beside or asserting um, asserting, you know, mm-hmm. our 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 voices in a way that's that's sort of saying, okay, like we're gonna, like I said, coalesce behind this one issue because yeah. we we understand that there's just too many to to deal with today, but we can do something about this one, and we can stand for our brothers and sisters over there, in so-called BC, because we see what's happening. You know, yeah. uh, everybody sees what hap- what's happening. 
And unfortunately, we just don't have anybody that we can call to say, hey, let's make it a fair, let's make it fair. Exactly. And I, I even hate to do this. I, I feel like I could talk to you for another six hours. And you know, maybe sometime we actually should, Christy, just <laughs> have one of those marathon discussions. But yeah, you know, yeah, totally, totally. Before I let you go, I like, I'd love to hear from you, uh, like what you think about the impact that these arrests have had on us. Like, do you think it's in any way dampened the spirits of Indigenous peoples? I mean, clearly we see an increase in the number of solidarity actions um, and solidarity around the Wet'suwet'en and now the Mohawks at Tandanaga. Um, what do you see happening going forward for us as Indigenous peoples and nations? Uh, you know, it's really hard to say for the, for, there was a couple questions in there. Yeah. Uh, and it's really hard to say uh, a definitive answer for any one of those questions. Mm-hmm. I can say what, what I would hope would go forward or what would be a winning formula to go forward, I guess, is, um, is to my mind, restoring the things that make us who we are is frontline work that isn't seen and shouldn't be seen in the public eye. So, for example, language revitalization, yeah. learning skills on the land. You know, uh, there's many of our communities now don't even have, and I say our, I don't mean to mm-hmm. make this pan-Indigenous or anything. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying observe. It's just a shortcut for saying among among many Indigenous communities, uh, we, we know that, for example, the grocery stores were to close. Many of our people wouldn't know how to be on the land in a way that would be enough to survive for the whole community mm-hmm. um, so the skills of the trappers and the hunters the governance systems restoring all of those things that were oppressed in our people and getting our land back so yeah. that means that um, you know my friend Isaac Isaac yeah Murdoch, yeah, yeah. Uh, my buddy my best friend he, <laughs> he's um, awesome. yeah he's awesome we're, we're we're really good friends and uh, he said that an elder told him once that that the salt shaker, he said that he asked him, what's traditional governance? And the elder took the salt shaker out and he put, poured that salt all over the all over the table. And he said, that's what traditional governance is. And so what that tells us is that we need to be on our lands. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be on our lands. It's not possible because so many people are living in urban centers and all of that, but, but it is possible for many. And, and I often think about the education system is creating a kind of a dependency in the terms of that because it just simply eats up so many hours in the day of our children's yep. minds that there isn't, we're, we're doing our languages and our traditional things and our, our uh, skill set is after hours and it has to be a reverse in my mind. It has to be where we're raising children to be traditional midwives. Because birthing our babies outside of the state is important. Not registering, resisting, and asserting our rights on the lands of our ancestors is important. Making sure our languages are intact and strong. Making sure we can survive on our lands. Mm -hmm. Making sure we're sending our young people out to fast to get those visions that they need to be warriors. All of those things are going to matter. Because we can see where this is headed and it, yeah. nobody in the world thinks that it's going in a good way. And hardly anybody is talking about peace. And that's very shocking and sad to me because mm-hmm. I'm actually a pacifist. I believe in peace. I believe in, in relationships. And I believe 
in spirituality and the power of the earth. And I believe in the gentleness sometimes that, that is, is the healing that's needed. But there are also times when you have to stand up for yep. what is right and what is just. And unfortunately, in those moments, you know, you can't ask for warriors to stand down in the moments when we need them to stand up. And, and this is so, I'm not looking forward with much optimism for the future generations, but I am looking forward in terms of making sure people are prepared because we're, we're, we're in the midst of ecological collapses. And our way forward is to join with other people around the world who are like-minded. And so it's sometimes it's less about about indigenous rights as it as it is more of responsibilities to the land and to the waters. Mm-hmm. And in that case, in that framework, it opens up the door for relationships and solidarity with people in a way that doesn't create a hierarchy, but an equal movement going forward yeah. with people around the world to save the planet. I'm really inspired by what you're saying because. The other issue that really wasn't talked about as much as it should have been was this massive climate change tidal wave that is rushing towards us. And the debate focuses on pipelines and jobs and tech mine and jobs and and not seeing that those jobs won't mean anything if we can't drink water and, and eat and live safely and healthy and and so your your message is important and I know there's a lot of youth that are listening who will probably think about language and land skills in a very different way now that it's not just for an, a cultural nicety as other people might think about it but it's it's actually about our survival and um, I think that you know these are really important messages and and Christy I'm just so inspired by you because you always have messages of peace in the context of the reality of the hard things that we need to do moving forward and it's always about love context of understanding the reality that you know we're we're all a colonized people and there's a lot of challenges within that context but it's to just keep going and keep pursuing and you know your art inspires your word inspires and you're a warrior woman who actually lives by, by her words and the fact that you were there supporting the Tandanega Mohawks and the Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders and Gitsen and, and everybody. I've, I've never seen you in anything but a supporting role. And for that, I thank you. And, you know, my, my kids look up to you and they think that, you know, there's just an incredible spirit. And I think the more we maintain these relations, all of us working together, no matter what our nation-based background is, I think that's that's going to be success. And and all of these solidarity actions have have really inspired me. That you know our people are strong and resilient, and we're loving and we're hopeful and we're determined. And no amount of arrests is ever going to deter us. And that's that's a real hope. So thank you for everything that you do. Thank you. I do have one more message um, mm-hmm. for for young people that might be listening, and that is that that I believe in you, and I I love you all for what you're doing to stand up for the earth, and I just have a little bit of uh, maybe a recommendation in our movements generally when we're doing these things. Look for the strengths in people. Mm-hmm. Look for the things that are great in people 
and ignore the things that maybe are not so great and and really really appreciate those things that are good in people and ignore the things that are not so good and don't trash talk don't trash talk people online and don't trash talk people in the movement because we have to be united mm-hmm. and the only way to do that going forward is to appreciate our strengths and and kind of put aside uh, those things that you might consider to be weak in another person. Thank you. I think that's an important message. I mean, our, our movement is only as strong as those of us that are united within it. And it's really hard. It's already hard enough as it is being a colonized people. And we kind of have to just accept each other for where we're at and what we contribute to this movement. And I think for the vast majority of us, you know, we're all wanting the best outcome for everybody. I agree. Thank you, Christy. I mean, like I said, I can't thank you enough. I hope that you'll come back on and and uh, give us updates. I hope that you're taking care of you. I know that's a lot of work. You know, I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us today. And I'm going to make sure it gets posted as soon as possible so that people hear what really happened, what was really going on, and find their way through all the noise and and hear from someone who is there as an observer and a friend. Thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to a time when you and I can sit down and and mm-hmm. and talk and and uh, and not when we're not a not a popular conversation over the radio, yeah. but or a <laughs> podcast, but over, you know, just over a cup of tea. And next time I'm I'm anywhere where you are. Let's do that. OK, that sounds okay. good. Thank you so much, Christy. OK, bye. Bye bye. Thank you all for tuning into my show. I really hope you learned a lot from Christy. I know I did and I always do every time I listen to her. Please continue to follow people like Christy on social media so that you know the facts of what's happening and you never have to rely on mainstream media headlines. Her website is christybelcor.com and I'll post a link to it in my description box. I'll also post a link to where you can support the Wet'suwet'en as well as the Tyendinaga Mohawks. If you like this episode, please consider supporting this podcast by subscribing, liking, and especially sharing each episode. Let me know what other podcast topics you'd like me to cover and other people you'd like me to interview. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. And you can also follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn as Pam underscore Palmiter, or subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle the difficult political and legal issues facing Indigenous peoples. And I've also done a series of videos specifically on the Wet'suwet'en issue and the Wet'suwet'en solidarity actions. For ease of information, you can just go straight to my website, which is www.pampalmeter.com, where you can access all of these things, my podcasts, my videos, my blogs, my publications, and much more. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliog.